Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. On February 14th, 2018, one of the worst tragedies in our history unfolded as a murderer armed with an assault weapon entered Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. In the span of just a few minutes, he killed 17 people and wounded 17 more. Alyssa Aladef, 14. Scott Beagle, 35. Martin Duque, 14. Nicholas Dwaret, 17. Aaron Feiss, 37. Jamie Guttenberg, 14. Chris Hickson, 49. Luke Hoyer, 15. Cara Lofren, 14. Gina Montalto, 14. Joaquin Oliver, 17. Elena Petty, 14. Meadow Pollock, 18. Helena Ramsey, 17. Alex Schachter, 14. Carmen Shentrup, 16. Peter Wang, 15. Jamie Guttenberg's father, Fred, is my guest today. The situation at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, what the officials have described as a mass casualty incident. I was in the restroom while I heard 10 or 15 gunshots go I just spent the last two hours putting the burial arrangements for my daughter's funeral, who's 14. President Trump, please do something. Senator Rubio, I just listened to your opening and thank you. I want to like you. Here's the problem. And I'm a brutally honest person, so I'm just going to say it up front. Yes, sir. When I like you, you know it. And when I'm pissed at you, you know it. Your comments this week and those of our president have been pathetically weak. Turn on your television right now. You're going to see scenes of children running for their lives. What looks to be the 19th school shooting in this country, and we have not even hit an epidemic of mass slaughter. As a parent, it scares me to death. This body doesn't take seriously the safety of my children. The photograph of Brett Kavanaugh turning his back on Fred Guttenberg went viral almost immediately. And by the time Brett Kavanaugh made his opening remarks, the White House was already issuing statements defending Brett Kavanaugh turning his back on Fred Guttenberg. And I'm not sure how many of you are aware of the video that the NRA put out two days ago. Okay, because they put a target on all of your backs. And when he promised to protect the Second Amendment rights of gun owners, the father of a high school freshman who was killed at Parkland shouted at him and was escorted from the gallery. 
Hi, I'm Fred Guttenberg, father of Jesse and Jamie Guttenberg. I lost my daughter, Jamie, in the Parkland school shooting, and I've spent every day of my life since then trying to reduce the gun violence death rate and to honor my daughter's memory. I will keep fighting to save your life. Sorry, not sorry. So as I was in bed last night trying to figure out how I was going to interview my friend about something so painful, I realized I know you and I love you, but I know probably a very different Fred than who you are at your essence. Mm -hmm. So I think my first question to you is, I I want you to try to go back before February 14th, 2018. Let's say back to 2015. Who Mm -hmm. were you in 2015? You know what? That's actually one of the best questions anybody's ever asked me. Hmm. And let me answer it by saying this first. I've always been a relentless pain in the ass. (laughs) I've always taught my children, you always do what's right and you always fight for what you believe in and you don't worry about the way other people see it. You do it anyway if you believe it's right. Hmm. And I taught that to them because that's the way I've always lived my life. Now, Going back to 2015, I still owned my business. I was a Dunkin' Donuts franchisee, and I had multiple stores over three markets in Miami, Jacksonville, and Tennessee. So I was a guy who was multitasking, who was doing a lot of stuff, you know, as an entrepreneur, so not always with a lot of resources. And I was a guy who was always trying to be better than the others who were doing the similar work to me. I was also an incredibly devoted dad and husband. When I wasn't working, my wife and I were always with our kids. We never, we were not parents who vacationed without our kids. We vacationed with our kids. We were at all their events. We were taking them to the practices. I used to go camping with my kids And so I think the version of me that you've gotten to know, Alyssa, is not very unlike the version that existed then. I've always put myself completely into everything I've done. It's just now my mission and my purpose has changed. And I think one change now versus then, and and it's a big change, and it's probably the reason I do what I do today I had the normal fears and anxieties back then that people have. And one of those would be, I would be fearful of who, I don't know if fearful is the right word, but I would be aware of who I was talking to. I looked at certain people of having different places in life than I do, and I get the normal butterflies. You know, if I would have met you back in 2015, I would have been like, oh my God, I'm meeting Alyssa Milano. Mm. You know, now you're my friend. You know, if I would have met, the people in the world of politics or media or tried to do interviews back then, I would have been a nervous wreck because it wasn't my normal world. And when Jamie died running down the hallway, knowing there was an active shooter at her back, I started to realize what Jamie had was fear, real fear, real anxiety. And ever since that day, as I fight for Jamie, I've lost the ability to have fear and anxiety 
because I'll never have what she had. And it's given me this ability now to approach people, to go up to people, to write about people, to call people out, or to embrace people who want to be a part of this mission and cause and who want to help me. So there's a lot of similarity in the Fred from 2015 to 2020, but there are some really significant changes as well. Do you think that you are in fight mode? I think a lot about fight or flight because I have anxiety, so I'm constantly in the fight place. And I wish that my body had some kind of mechanism where I could just switch it over to fight mode and at least be a little bit more fierce. Do you feel like you're in fight mode? I don't know. I think my my question is more to where do you have the energy to keep going and to not slow down? Alyssa, if you're not in fight mode, I'd hate to see you when you are because you're pretty <laughs> fierce and you take a lot of people on. Yeah, I guess that's true <laughs> from, a, from an outsider's perspective. <laughs> and from the insider's perspective, I just weep in the fetal position every night. No, I, and, and listen, and I get that. You know, I, I guess I am in fight mode. What happened to my daughter, what happened to 16 others, what happens to approximately 40,000 people around this country every year shouldn't. It's preventable. And I tell you this, I live with this guilt that you can't imagine that I never put my voice into this issue before it was my daughter. And then it became my daughter. And so, yeah, I am in fight mode. I want to change the way this country deals with the gun lobby. I want to break the fucking gun lobby. I want to I want to fire those legislators who actually talk to people like you and I as if we're the problem, right, who won't right. do the right thing. I want to fire those legislators who take money from the gun lobby and allow our children to be at risk because they won't do the right thing. And so, yeah, I have a mission and I am in fight mode and it keeps me going. There's no question. I do believe the day is going to come where we're going to get this done, where we're going to be successful, where maybe one day I'll be standing with the president who signs gun safety legislation into law. And that will be the moment where you're going to see me turn to a pile of mush and cry like a baby. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask, do you think you've been able to to grieve for Jamie? I do. You know, Vice President Biden, when I met him just a few weeks after Jamie was killed, said to me, everybody grieves differently. You know, he was the first person who said that to me. And he talked to me about how unpredictable grief was and about how we're all going to have to find our own unique way to get through it. And what I tell people is that uh, um, it's going to take a long time, but the person you lost is still with you, still part of you. And that I, I, when it happened to me, when I got a phone call, when I was in Washington, after I was elected, before I got sworn in, that my poor, they put a first responder on the phone, God love her, and said, you got to come home. It's been an accident. What happened? Attracted us. I said, they're dead. Your wife and daughter are dead and your sons. And I remember thinking to myself, my God. Well, I mean, I didn't. I just remember being so angry, angry with everything. And I shouldn't say it, but angry with God, just angry. And I remember, and people would come up to me and say, meaning well, after I understand, 
Mm. And you feel like saying, you have no idea, you have no idea. You know they mean well. But the people who in fact have been through it, you know they understand. Mm. And it gives you solace that they made it. They just, you just want to know, can I make it through? So for me, so true. Doing this is part of my grieving process. But let me tell you something. I'm a dad who goes to the cemetery a lot just to be with my daughter. Mm -hmm. It's the only place I can be physically close to her. And people would probably think I was crazy if they drove by because I sit there having full-on conversations, hands flying all over the place. But that's me talking to my daughter. I go through pictures every single day because I can't stop looking at her face. What's bizarre about the grieving thing is my wife watches videos. My wife has to see her like alive and my wife can tolerate hearing her voice and her laughter and everything else. Mm. And every time I see these videos, they break me. I've gotten better about watching some of them. My wife certainly every once in a while will say, you just have to see this one. And so I do. I have a very hard time with that. There's moments where out of the blue, you may see a picture and it just hits you in a way that is gets you it breaks you. And I sit there and I cry. I mean, I am definitely grieving. Can I tell you, I've taken the time to completely focus on on me and not what I lost? Right. I haven't. In my business, having straight teeth is so important. And for me, that meant making sure my teeth were perfectly straight with Candid. If you're unhappy with your smile or self-conscious in photos, you have to check them out. They deliver clear aligners right to you and straighten your teeth for 65% less than braces. And the best part? They are totally invisible. You can transform your smile without anyone noticing a thing. And you never have to set foot in a doctor's office or a waiting room. Your treatment is prescribed remotely by a licensed orthodontist, and Candid delivers everything you need right to your door. Unlike other companies, Candid only works with your orthodontists, never general dentists. That means your treatment will be designed by an expert in tooth movement with 20 years of experience on average. Looking ahead to a wedding season or a special event? With Candid, the average treatment length is just six months, and you'll start seeing results way before then. Learn more about Candid's process and get a complimentary 3D scan of your teeth at a Candid studio near you. It's the simplest, freest way to get started. Are you ready to take the first step towards straighter teeth? For a limited time, you could get started with $75 off by using code SORRY at candidco.com slash sorry. That's candidco.com slash sorry. Use code SORRY for $75 off. Candidco.com slash sorry. Code SORRY. you were basically catapulted into the national spotlight. And so that was, I would think, would be another reason or or issue in your grieving process. What effect did that have on your life and and in your home, within, within your family unit? The day after Jamie was killed, there was the Parkland Vigil. 
and I decided to go to it. I went with some family and some friends. My wife and my son stayed home. They they couldn't get out. But I decided I just needed to go be with my community. Uh, you know, the community in, it's, it's itself got really, really affected. Some of the other families were going to be there, and I just felt the need to be with people. So I went, and when I got there, the mayor asked me if I wanted to speak. And I've talked about this before, I think, with you. I hadn't prepared anything, but I said, yeah. And I went up on stage, and I just let it rip. That speech certainly put me on this trajectory that I'm on now, because facing the thousands of people at this vigil is when it really hit me after the 20, first 24 hours of, li- of life being like a blur that I was a victim of gun violence, right. that my community was a victim of gun violence. And I went home from the vigil that night, and that was the first time I said to my family and my wife, I'm going to break that fucking gun lobby. I didn't know what it meant at the time, but I knew my life was never going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't been, because days later was the CNN town hall with Senator Rubio. So, you and I are now eye to eye, because I want to like you. Look at me and tell me guns were the factor in the, the hunting of our kids in this school this week. And look at me and tell me you accept it and you will work with us to do something about guns. Fred, um, I'm not, first of all, what I, let me explain what I said this week, and I'll repeat it. I'll repeat what I said, and what I said, and then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to talk about guns, and we're going to talk about what I said this week, and here's what I said. I said that the problems that we are facing... Let, let, let him speak. I think we need to hear it. I'm saying that the problems that we're facing here today cannot be solved by gun laws alone. And I'm going to tell you what we've done already and what I hope we'll do moving were forward. Were guns the factor Absolutely. in the hunting of, of our kids? They were. I haven't stopped since, and I'm not planning to until we get this done. Well, I mean, you are basically living every parent's worst nightmare. My anxiety in my life comes from losing a child, and you've lived that. And when you and I sat down with Ted Cruz uh, <laughs> a few months ago— that's yeah. that's how I, I handed over the mic to you but by saying, okay, here's my biggest fear in my life. And I think every parent can relate to that. But here's someone that's actually, that's living that nightmare. Every day. So I have a few questions. You mentioned the gun lobby. So let's go back to that. Why do you think the gun lobby is to blame for gun violence in America for people that might not be able to have connected the dots Will you explain to people how that works? Oh, it's very simple. They sell a completely false narrative in order to sell more guns. And the false narrative is that only people who are going to go on, who are going to be hunters or sportsmen are buying guns. And so we owe it to this country to support their Second Amendment right to do so. And doing anything that would put any limits on who can or should own a weapon means you're coming after everybody's guns. 
You want to end the Second Amendment. You want to send people in white lab coats to people's homes to remove all their weapons. You hate the Second Amendment. You're anti-American. And then they create fear so that they can sell more guns. And nothing could be further from the truth. And we saw this with Senator Cruz. Nobody's trying to remove your right to self-defense. By the way, I, I have two guns in my household for self-defense. My father-in-law has a load of guns. This, that's the thing. I'm, nobody here is trying to remove weapons from anybody. Listen, you're a gun owner, right? I am. Okay. Can you pass a background check? Yes. You ever beat your wife? No. Okay. Nobody's trying to take your guns. So the notion that people are is nonsense. The notion that you can't support HRA, even though you're a senator of a state that has people now getting shot in Walmart, on the highway, in schools, uh, I'm missing a church, uh, in every setting. Now, you mentioned the Sutherland Springs, the guy who was there to stop the Sutherland Springs shooter. How many people died first? How many people died in the Sutherland Springs shooting? I know before, before the shooter stopped. Far too many. Far too many. When he started in about the Second Amendment, and I said to him, I said, can you pass a background check? And he said, yes. And I said, have you ever beaten your wife? And he said, no. I said, then what are you worried about? You know, and I, I had a similar experience just last week in Tallahassee. I was with the governor's office meeting with some of his staff. And one of them, again, because I'm trying to get them to do even more in Florida, brought up the Second Amendment. And I said, I got to ask everyone at this table a question, since you all feel similarly. I said, we passed gun safety legislation in Florida three weeks after my daughter was killed. I said, what part of that legislation has affected you so far? Right. That's a great question. <laughs> but the gun lobby would have you believe that legislation is about taking people's rights away. It isn't. It's about keeping killers away from guns. When you asked that question, what did they say to you? Because that's the thing also that it is so hard to fight with people who have such a pre-memorized set of talking points, <laughs> and they do yeah. not waver from those talking points. And it is so infuriating to have a conversation with someone like that when you bring up such logical points, right? It's like that time when when we were, you know, protesting outside of the NRA convention and the and the InfoWars guys came over to me. Yeah. And, and I said, you know, I work two gun household and you could actually see the steam come out of this guy's head. Like, wait, what? That's not part of this script. Like it was he they just have they can't have a human logical conversation about it. All they do is recite talking points and they're so harmful. And, you know, we talked to Senator Cruz about these phrases like gun grabber and how they were not helpful. Uh -huh. And he agreed. He said, yeah, you know, you know what? You're you're right. They're not helpful. But he went back to doing it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But you know what? And this maybe is the answer to the question. Because going back to what happened in Dallas with the InfoWars people, or even with Senator Cruz, what was our reaction? It was to talk. Right. And, and, and I do ultimately believe, and, I, and I've said this often, as long as somebody wants to have a respectful conversation, I will talk to anyone about this issue and what it is we actually mean and want. Because all I want is to lower the gun violence death rate. That's it. That's what I want. 
and everything that I've ever heard proposed. I mean, there. listen, there's extremes in every topic. Extremes don't ever become law, all right? But the things that are actually being proposed and talked about in a very reasonable way, none of them will affect any legal, lawful gun owner. But I, I will also say, and this is part of the gun lobby problem and why we should all be concerned, look at some of the laws they have fought for, okay? Like open carry. And we now have people utilizing open carry to openly intimidate. We've all seen the photos now of these guys with masks around their face, so you don't know who they are, showing up with AR-15 strapped to themselves to counter law or counter demonstrate against mom's demand. Okay, that's not okay. No. It's not okay. And it's not okay for our children to see that imagery and think that it's okay. No, it's not. But this is what the gun lobby wants to sell. The moment that seems to be drawing the most attention is an interaction between Kendall Jones and a four-year-old boy named Maverick. In a clip posted to her Twitter and Instagram, Jones approaches the little boy and starts with the standard questions. She asks him his name and how old he is, to which he responds by counting on his fingers. Then she hits him with this doozy. Show me what you did with your gun. Do it again. Maverick responds like a pro. Even though the rifle is mounted to a display case and doesn't have any ammunition, he's still able to lock and load the mechanism and he places his finger right on the trigger. They want actually children to see that and think, wow, that guy looks tough. That's cool. So it is the reason why I am determined, in spite of Plaka, to get traction with my lawsuit against the gun manufacturer. According to the lawsuit, Fred and Jennifer Guttenberg and Max Schachter seek to hold defendants legally responsible for their complicity in the entirely foreseeable, deadly use of the assault-style weapons that they place in the market. We need to change the course of history as it relates to guns, and we need to force manufacturers, marketers, and retailers of guns to be the responsible ones to make sure that when these guns end up in someone's hands, there is a way to ensure they're ending up in the hands of someone who does not intend to kill somebody else. Because in spite of everything we know, they actively market their weapons to kids. Kids who still are impulsive, kids who are too young to fully know right from wrong, and they're doing it. Yeah. Before their brain is fully developed, they want to indoctrinate Correct. them. Correct. And we need to get these CEOs under oath so we can get them to say it. So they call us gun grabbers. They say that we're against the Second Amendment and the Constitution. Describe the laws that you believe are the most important laws to change to someone who actually calls you a gun grabber. Say you are having that conversation with someone who thinks you're a gun grabber. Tell them about the laws and what are important to change. Well, listen, let's just start with background checks. Let's have a functional, effective background check system in this country, but not just on guns, but ammunition as well. We already have over 300 million weapons on the street. Many of them may be in the hands of people who are prohibited purchasers, who trade, transfer, or steal, 
And then they can walk into a store and actually not legally buy the bullets. They're still prohibited from buying that, but there's no legal requirement for a background check. So they're able to walk in the store and buy the bullets. And so we need a functional background check system on weapons, but we should also be passing Jamie's law, which will extend that to ammunition. Tell us about Jamie's law. Well, you know what? Jamie's law is a law that seeks to deal with the reality of the over 300 million weapons that are on the street now. You have anybody who's currently in possession of a weapon who is a prohibited purchaser or who maybe stole their weapon. They stole it from a car or somebody's house or they privately transferred a weapon between people. Even though they're not legally able to buy guns, they can walk into the store and buy the bullets because, again, there's no requirement for a background check on bullets. And Jamie's law, which has already been introduced in the House and Senate in D.C., it's been supported by over 20 state attorney generals. There's multiple states now looking to do something along those lines and get ammunition background checks. California just passed it back in July and put it into effect. It just seeks to extend background checks to ammunition. That's it. Not to remove anybody's right, but to keep the bad guys, the ones who are going to illegally use weapons, who may seek to harm or kill, away from the ability to do so. That's all it seeks to do. So I believe strongly in the law. I believe strongly in background checks on ammunition. I think we must raise the age to 21 for reasons we spoke about before. But brains are still developing. Impulsive behavior still exists. And I believe the age should be 21. I believe we need to do something with high-capacity magazines. I believe we need to get rid of this open carry, which has turned into open intimidation. Mm -hmm. And I believe we do need to ban weapons of war. You may recall, for the longest time, I wouldn't say that. I focused on all the other things that I thought we should do. Six minutes and 20 seconds with an AR-15, and my friend Carmen would never complain to me about piano practice. Aaron Feist would never call Kira Miss Sunshine. Alex Schachter would never walk into school with his brother Ryan. Scott Beagle would never joke around with Cameron at camp. Helena Ramsey would never hang out after school with Max. Gina Montalto would never wave to her friend Liam at lunch. Joaquin Oliver would never play basketball with Sam or Dylan. Elena Petty would never. Carol Lugren would never. Chris Hickson would never. Luke Hoyer would never. Marquine Duque Aguiano would never. Peter Wang would never. Alyssa Alhadaf would never. Jamie Guttenberg would never. Meadow Pollock would never. Even after my daughter was killed, I wouldn't say I think we should ban weapons of war. I felt that it would be better to focus on all these other life-saving things. But the truth is, we keep seeing the reality of these weapons being used in these mass shootings. And we now see the reality of people literally walking the streets with these right. weapons, trying to send the message that they will use them to kill us. And I think it is those images of these people using these weapons as a form of intimidation, which has gotten me to the point where I'm thinking, you know what? They should be off the streets. And I wonder, too, if it's their way of maybe not only intimidation, but also normalizing it, right? So that that image of that weapon of war that we have so clearly in our minds in a combat situation, from their perspective, if we see that in the streets, maybe more people will feel like, oh, yeah, that's what I need. I need one of those. Well, 
How proud should we be as a country that they tried to intimidate in Virginia and it failed? And Virginians still stepped up and voted for people who are going to do something about gun violence. And the Virginia governor, Senate and House are going through and passing gun safety legislation right now in in spite of those lunatics showing up with their weapons. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam declared a state of emergency prior to the rally. No weapons will be allowed on the Capitol grounds. No one wants another incident like the one we saw in Charlottesville in 2017. More than 20,000 gun rights advocates descended on Richmond today for what used to be a small annual event, a state of emergency declared the crowd protesting the state's efforts to overhaul gun law. The Virginia House of Delegates passed seven Democratic gun reform laws 10 days after large protests at the state capitol over the proposed measures. The bills include regulations implementing universal background checks and red flag legislation, allowing officials to take guns from those determined to be dangerous to themselves or others. Fred, the other thing I was thinking about as I was prepping to speak with you today is that the trial of Jamie's killer is still pending. Mm. And we don't hear a lot about that. What do you want the world to know about this trial? I'm frustrated as hell over this. So here's what I want the world to know. I want my daughter's killer dead. I don't know if people expect to hear me say that as clearly as I just did, but I do. The trial, I'm not sure it's the fastest and most effective way to do it because right now this kid is in a protected status until they eventually have a trial. And then he'll remain in protected status because there'll be an appeal. Getting the death sentence, which is the only reason to have the trial, that would have, you know, you have to then go through the penalty phase after a conviction and you have to get a unanimous verdict. Although there are some questions in Florida right now with the recent ruling, if that's still the case, it's going to drag on and on and on for years, for 15, 20 years. I'll probably die before this kid does based on what's happening now. I feel I wish the state attorney would just take the plea and put the kid in a uh, prison population without protected status, and it'll be taken care of. And I know that sounds brutal and harsh. This kid took my daughter from me. Are you going to go to the trial? As much of it as I can. I'll for sure be there for opening arguments, closing arguments, anything that's dealing with Jamie. And I'm going to try to be there for as much of the other parts as I can as well. There are always going to be, because it's going to be over an extended period of time, going to be occasional life conflicts. But I intend to be there for as much of it as I can. Listen, we're not even sure when it's going to start. I mean, it was supposed to start January. It's so crazy to me. It was supposed to start January. Now they're saying May. I think it's going to get pushed again. And we're not even yet 100% sure where it's going to be. Because they may end up needing, because of the jury pool, needing to seek a change of venue. So it's just, it's it's so frustrating. And it keeps my wife and I in this kind of place of limbo where at least on that part, I'd love closure. I'd love to never have to think about what's going to happen to that kid ever again. Mm-hmm. But I can't. And a trial is going to terrorize the families. There's been so much evidence that we have not had to see that is, you know, in possession of law enforcement, but in a public trial, it's going to come out. And 
we've been shielded from that and that, and I'm fine with that. Once it's out though, you can't unhear it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. And it's going to be there with us forever. I mean, the community seems like such a, a tight-knit community. Can you speak a little bit to how important that has been through this process? You know, the night of the vigil, I said in my speech, this time gun violence came to the wrong community and messed with the wrong dad. And I never realized just how true the community part of that was going to be. Whatever was needed for as long as we needed it after it happened, there were just members of this community that were just there to hold us up, to provide, whether it was a meal because we just couldn't get out of the house that day, or it was some kind of emotional support. And I knew a lot of people in my community before February 14th, but wow, I know so many more now who have just become, to me, these amazing parts of my life Mm. that I could never do without. Mm. And that's just the local community. Because I think of, you know, for me, community has become a lot bigger even than just my local community. It's now this community of of other families that suffer from gun violence, that have been right. affected by it, that have become a part of my life. And, you know, and I don't know that I could get through some of the days that I get through without this big extended community that's a part of my life right now. We all live in this community. We all live in this society. And we all live in this America that we want to change. We are here to be the change that we want to see. To change the world, it starts with us. When I say no justice, you say no peace. No justice. We march on into November in the elections. We will vote. And everyone else who, before February 14th, not a part of my life, but all of you now, you are. And it's actually, to be honest, it's, it's part of what my book is about. Because in my book, I talk about my story and what happened, but I also talk about how amazed I am at how amazing people have been. We always hear people say, ow, people suck you know, or entertainers suck, or media sucks, politicians suck. You know, everybody sucks. And for me, it has been completely the opposite. I am blown away at how amazing people have been, how they have helped me get through my days, how they have helped me go forward in my mission. And I'm very thankful, you know, and, and if nothing else, I do hope people can look at me and hear me say that, And maybe try to look at those who are around them differently. You know, instead of with so much hostility, recognize there's a lot of good people out there. Well, and also I think it's an important message because we sit behind our computer screens and we try to connect on a very different level. And I think that we're in such – humankind is in such a transitional period right now because of that, that we've almost lost our ability to look into someone's eyes and feel real empathy and compassion. And those of us that can still do it, I think, 
suffer from that because it is painful, because life is not easy. When you look at the decline in attending church, I think that that's that's another thing that's hurt us because we are trying to create leaders, right? It's a huge industry, uh, book after book about how to be a great leader, but there's not a lot of money to be had in how to be a good community member, how to be a good human for other humans. And I think that this surge of secularism really has has really hurt our ability to connect on that community level. And sadly, it takes a tragedy for that to happen. Let's face it. When you put yourself out there in a very public way, while you're going to get a lot of love, you're going to get a lot of hate also. But for me, I engage the hateful people because I want to expose the way they think and the way they approach me. But I don't care about what they have to say about me. You know, they they don't have any influence on how I feel or how I think on any given day. But the people who engage me, who show me love, compassion, who civility, support, those are the people who keep me going every second of every day. And this is part of what I talk about in the book. And what we need to focus on is finding those people who do that for us. Not the people who alienate us, but the people who are there to support us, who want to do right by us, who we want to do right by. And I just think social media certainly makes it harder, but it's still something that we can and need to do. And I think what you said about leaders is spot on. It's one of those things that you'll hear me talk about in the TED Talk. Those of you who were watching it saw me confront Senator Rubio. Now, the thing that's important about that is that was the moment where I realized I no longer have this feeling of awe for people who are in a different position in life than I am, whether they're elected, whether they're entertainers, wherever they come from. You, I no longer have awe. I no longer look at you as being more than me. What I look at everybody as from that moment forward was you're either going to be part of doing something with me about this or you won't. And I've conducted myself going forward every night since that way, that way. We're all part of the same human experience and we all have to deal with things like loss. I talk about leaders and I talk about how we all are faced with moments in life And it's not necessarily the moment that will determine what happens to you in the long term, but the way you respond to it. And it's in these moments in life where some of this country's heroes and leaders are born because of the way they responded and reacted and the way they cared for other people. You know, whether it be people who I've met because of this gun violence mission that I'm on or my brother who was in the World Trade Center when it collapsed He was there setting up the triage and then stayed 16 days to treat patients. Or Sully, who landed the plane on the Hudson. People, Mm -hmm. the way you respond to your moments will determine amazing outcomes. And this is where our leaders come from. But it's all about how you treat people and how you care about people. 
And I think there's a lot more out there of people who actually care and want to do right than the other way around. And as long as I continue believing that, I'm optimistic. Part of that optimism and part of your your mission and your drive has been starting Orange Ribbons for Jamie. And I would like to hear a little bit about that. You do some really <laughs> interesting fundraisers. Uh, let us know yeah. if you have any of those coming up. And also, will you tell our listeners how they can get involved? Orange Ribbons for Jamie really got started the night Jamie died. Orange was Jamie's favorite color. People think I started it with that color because it's the um, symbol of the color of the gun safety movement, but it was Jamie's favorite color. And the night that she died, all of Jamie's dance sisters that she used to competitively dance with came over wearing orange ribbons. They marched into my house. They ran up to her room. They started crying, but they all came wearing orange ribbons. And when they left my house that night, they went back to the dance studio and they ended up making thousands of orange ribbons and brought them to us the next day to give out at the funeral. For the next few weeks, I wore the orange ribbon every single day. And I was out one day and somebody said, what's the orange ribbon for? And when I told them, they said, do you know that's also the color of the gun safety movement? I had no idea. I was never a member of the mm-hmm. movement. I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. it. But when that person told me the connection was too much for me to pass on, and that day I decided to start Orange Ribbons for Jamie with my wife. And the purpose of Orange Ribbons for Jamie is to honor my daughter by supporting things that matter to Jamie in life, but also to educate on why Jamie's life was cut short. And so what do we do besides educating on gun safety? Well, we've done dance scholarships. We've donated to the Humane Society. We've donated to a place called the Paley Institute, where Jamie actually wanted to work as a physical therapist because they do surgeries on kids with limb deformities. And we've recently set up a college scholarship program in Jamie's name. And the scholarship program that we've set up is um, where we call it for kids of all abilities. And the reason we do that is Jamie used to donate her time to kids with special needs. Every weekend, she was part of different groups so that she could be helping these kids and help to give them things in life that maybe they weren't getting somewhere else. Jamie got that from my wife. My wife's a pediatric occupational therapist, and my wife has always been there for kids of all abilities, and Jamie was no different. And so our scholarship program is for kids of all abilities, and there's three parts to it. One is a high school student who's going to go to college and going to major in something where you're helping other people, whether it be speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, maybe a physician. And that student also needs to have a background in community service and at least one year of dance. Why? Because Jamie did. And then the second possible scholarship is for a student who's going to go to college and major in dance. And they also have to have a background in community service. And again, because Jamie did. But the third potential student who can get a scholarship from us is a student with a diagnosed special need who may or may not be going on to a traditional four-year college education. And kids with special needs Their families, the financial ramifications of that are tremendous. There's not always scholarships made available for these kids. 
And we, in Jamie's name, decided we need to treat kids of all abilities the same. So we have scholarships available for all of them. And that's really going to, I think, be the legacy of our foundation is ultimately going to be building up this scholarship program. Our next big fundraiser is on February 19th in Fort Lauderdale at the Parker Playhouse. And it's a comedy show. And it's going to be just five nights after the February 14th Remembrance. And it'll give our community and anyone who's local or even coming into Florida the chance to just laugh together. What I love about it is how it actually came together. The comedian, Jessica Curson, and she's out of New York, but she does national tours. She's been on Late Night. I actually got connected with her on Twitter. Again, someone who reached out to me on Twitter, not to harass, but to say thank you, and I appreciate what you're doing. And I went to visit mm-hmm. her at a show of hers in New York, and we got to meet, and she offered to help put on this fundraiser for me. And she ended up getting Jim Brewer, who is, again, based out of New York, but I, I think most people would also know him. He's on Howard Stern a lot. Amazing. Yeah. He's and so Alonzo funny. Bowden, who, again, another nationally known name. So we have this night of comedy with these three amazing comedians, all in support of Orange Ribbons for Jamie, so we can keep honoring my daughter's memory, and I can make sure that no one will ever forget Jamie's name, but also importantly, that while I'll never get to see Jamie go to college, other kids will go to college because of Jamie. And that's something that my wife and I can at least get some degree of pleasure out of knowing Jamie's helping other kids. It's what she always wanted to do. That's such a gift. You're such a gift. And people could go to orangeribbonsforjamie.org, O-R-A-N-G-E, F-O-R, J-A-I-M-E dot O-R-G. Uh, we spelled her name a little differently. And the tickets are for sale right on our webpage. There's a link that puts you right through to Ticketmaster. So uh, hoping that we can get anyone who's listening to this out there. It's going to be a really wonderful night. Well, I think I'm going to finish this talk the way that I started, but just a little differently. In the beginning of our conversation, we talked about who you were in 2015. Uh, It's been two years now since Jamie was murdered. Who are you now? I am a father. I'm still a father of two children. One, I thank God get to go home to every day. He was also in the school and thank God he wasn't shot. And the other one I visit at a cemetery. I am a father and a husband who every day spends every second thinking about what happened to my family and what I can do to ensure our safety going forward, but the safety of others. I'm also a guy who realizes life can end in a New York minute. I know with certainty that I could also be shot and killed today. There's no doubt in my mind it can happen because it happens every day to others. The biggest change in me is I no longer have a long-term vision. I used to always be a guy that would make decisions not only based upon what they meant for today, but also what they would mean for myself and my family down the road, whether it be weeks, months, or even years. I always had a long-term view. I don't anymore. I, I do everything based upon today. And if I get through today and I wake up tomorrow, I'll repeat that process. But I've definitely lost my ability to have 
a long-term vision. I live for the day, and that's probably the biggest change in me since this all happened. And God willing, I'll wake up tomorrow. Imagine going to church and getting shot. Imagine pulling out your wallet and getting shot. Imagine using your cell phone and getting shot. Imagine calling for help and getting shot. Imagine driving with a broken taillight and getting shot. Imagine your child in the back seat when you get shot. Imagine being broadcast live on Facebook Live, bleeding out when you get shot. Imagine filling a description and getting shot. Imagine being handcuffed on the ground of a train stopping, getting shot. Imagine waiting for a friend in the coffee shop and cold cops put you out. Imagine being asked for trust you ain't got. Imagine college, graduating, celebrating, and getting shoved off the stage with that degree you just got. Imagine getting choked out for selling cigarettes to your snows losing snot. I mean, your snot box rock like you've been shot for being alive on a day that's hot. Imagine praying every day to not get shot. Imagine every blue uniform you see gives you flashbacks to getting shot. Are you tired of this? Imagine being tired of getting shot at. Bring it back. I love you back. Thank you. Thank you so much. Gun Safety Bill of Rights. 
We the people face a crisis, a mortal crisis. Every year, tens of thousands of innocent people are killed or seriously wounded by guns. And yet, as much as we seek to enact gun safety and gun control legislation, we find ourselves stymied from doing so by the NRA and the politicians it owns. Armed with extraordinary financial power and political influence, the NRA militantly opposes any such effort. The time has come for us to act, thus reaffirming the Declaration of Independence promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, acknowledging the disproportionate impact of gun violence on communities of color who have for too long been sidelined in this discussion, proclaiming anew our determination to secure a more perfect union for all who call our nation home, and asserting the fundamental truth that human lives are worth more than money. We hereby affirm, assert, and demand the following rights. The right of all of us, including those of all races, religions, classes, creeds, gender identities, sexual identities, abilities, ages, and locations to equal protection from gun violence. The right of all of us to know the extent of gun violence in our nation. The right of all of our children to live free of gun violence and to attend gun-free schools. The right of the mentally ill, including those who are suicidal, to protection from gun violence, including self-inflicted gun violence. The right of the people to have greater access to and influence over governmental policy than corporations and special interest groups. Moreover, to realize and guarantee those rights... We demand that our government places the prevention of gun violence high on the public agenda. We demand that the federal government funds rigorous, apolitical scientific studies of the effects of gun violence in our nation. We demand action by federal, state, and local authorities to reduce and prevent gun violence in their communities and by law enforcement agencies. We demand the reform and retraining of law enforcement and armed public officials to focus on de-escalation of conflict rather than the use of force. We demand that those who suffer the most from gun violence receive the most immediate remedies for gun violence. We demand laws prohibiting those with a history of violent or harassing behavior from owning or gaining possession of firearms. And... We demand ongoing legislative efforts which uphold the rights stated herein until the scourge of gun violence is ended in America for all who call her home. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 